0: You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that in the word as it is read, proclaimed, sung, and enacted in sacrament, that the living word made flesh will find a cradle within our hearts and lives. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus appears to the disciples after the Easter morning resurrection. He appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears to his disciples gathered together, shows them his wounds, and shares with them a meal. He teaches them a bit. And then Luke quickly skips forward to the scene of Jesus' ascension. That's where we come to our text today, which may be found on page 856 of your Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. Hear these words from Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Anyone else's child ever ask deep and difficult questions while riding in the car? On Wednesday evening, driving Eleanor home after the finance committee meeting, I'm on the committee, she's not, but she was here. She was telling me about her day. But as we turned onto 13th Street and drove across Memorial Bridge, with a beautiful view of the clouds dotting around McAfee Knob in the distance. Eleanor sweetly asked, out of the blue, did anyone else get up to heaven like Jesus on the cloud? I had to ask her to repeat the question. Did anyone else ever go up to heaven on a cloud? Is that what happens when we die? We go up to heaven on a cloud? Now to be completely honest with you, I don't remember reading the story of the Ascension to her. So this casual car ride question must be thanks to her Sunday school teachers, her worship and wonder storytellers, her second Presbyterian preschool. Regardless, I was impressed by the question deftly wedged between enthusiastic stories of science club and soccer shots. And I had to think for a moment before I could respond. Now, Eleanor loves the story of Elijah, thanks to the song Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And we remember together that Elijah was carried to heaven on a chariot of fire. But no, that didn't count, we decided. So we came to the conclusion that, yes, Jesus was the only one lifted up to heaven on a cloud. So then is heaven in the clouds? she asked No not exactly we don't exactly know where heaven is but we know it's with God i replied then did Jesus go up 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 into the sky and into outer space No that's not quite right either i admitted i have a lot of questions myself but maybe the bible isn't trying to tell us exactly physically or spatially, where Jesus is, but that he's with God. And whatever heaven means, it's with God. Then to my great relief, the questions pivoted from eschatology to whether or not we might still have watermelon popsicles at home. (laughs) Today marks six weeks after Easter. Next Sunday is Pentecost. Between these two liturgical milestones, when our pyramids move from white to red next week, we celebrate the ascension of Jesus. His ascension makes way, even sets the scene, for the arrival of the Spirit to his believers gathered in Jerusalem. Our text from Luke tries to explain what that looked like. How Jesus went from a physical, resurrected body, walking and talking with them, to then, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as we recite in the Creed week after week. It's not difficult for us to imagine those early disciples trying to make sense of the ascension, asking the question, much like Eleanor did, so where is Jesus now? We, too, tend to want to answer that question spatially. So think about it with me. Christians confess that Jesus came down to earth in the Incarnation when God took on human form at Jesus' birth. After Jesus' crucifixion and before his resurrection, we confess in the Apostles' Creed, and as we read in 1 Peter 3, that Jesus went down even further when he, we say, descended into hell. And now we read that Jesus goes up on a cloud to heaven in the ascension. Then finally, after Jesus goes up in this week's Ascension, we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming down and out upon the believers at Pentecost. That's a great deal of motion. Down to earth, down lower still, up to heaven, back down again. Dan Clendenin asks whether passages like ours require us to consider these ancient words of Scripture in ways that honor modern scientific cosmologies. How should we understand this language of ascent and descent? Is it metaphorical or literal? Fictional or mythical? Some mix of those, or maybe something altogether different? The Gospel of Mark barely mentions the ascension, a simple verse tacked on to the end of its original ending. Matthew doesn't mention the Ascension at all. John references the Ascension, but doesn't exactly describe it or define it. Luke does something different. The Gospel writer in Luke and in Acts separates the Resurrection from the Ascension. As we just read, Luke writes that 40 days after his Resurrection, after he'd spent those weeks teaching and preaching, Jesus withdrew from them and was carried up, into heaven. To state the obvious, our ideas today about space and time are different from those in Luke's day. The Apostle Paul describes a three-tiered universe in Philippians 2 verse 10, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's how they made sense of both the physical and theological space in the first century CE. There was heaven, there was earth, and there was below the earth. We recognize now, of course, that their understanding was limited by what little they knew of science and physics. That's not a criticism. I say that with humility that centuries and millennia from now, what we know will seem limited to future generations. But that's all to say, I don't believe Jesus is now physically seated up on a cloud. Philosopher Stephen Davis of Claremont University puts it this way, I do not believe that in the ascension Jesus went up, kept going until he achieved escape velocity from earth, and then kept moving until he got to heaven as though heaven were located somewhere in space the ascension of Jesus was primarily a change of state rather than a change of location. Jesus changed in the ascension from being present in the realm of space and time to being present in the realm of eternity in the transcendent heavenly realm. In other words, the ascension is a theological affirmation rather than a cosmological observation early Christians were wrestling with the question of how could Jesus be both present and absent after his death and resurrection? How is it that we proclaim he is still with us and yet he is not with us physically? The better way to think of ascension is not so much spatial, but about presence and absence. Jesus is now going to be present in the world in a new way, a new form. Jesus reorients the disciples. They were anticipating some sort of geopolitical change when Jesus returned. But the change is that he reorients their expectations. What's going to break forth is going to break forth among them. It would be their new role to manifest the good news of the gospel. When I was in high school, Tim LaHaye's book series, Left Behind, was very popular. I never read them, but I remember other youth groups reading them together and friends going to the movie to see see it when it was released. The premise of the story is that millions of people suddenly vanish from Earth, and frantic survivors of these disappearances begin their search for their friends and family, as well as answers to what has happened. What they discover is that the rapture has taken place and the good, faithful people were taken to heaven and all who remain are the unsaved, left to make their way in the end times. What we have here in Luke, however, is the opposite of such a scene. Jesus has suddenly ascended into heaven and his best men, the apostles, his right-hand guys, are left behind or rather, they're left to carry forward. While Jesus was taken up into heaven, the disciples were charged to stay and to carry the word into the world, not rejected by God, but sent by God in great joy to live and love as Jesus did. The ascension reminds us that we cannot limit God. While God came to us in the flesh and blood of Jesus, The ascension reminds us that we cannot restrict God to any one place. Thus, Jesus' ascension isn't about his leaving. It's not about his leaving his disciples or us or the world. But rather, it is about the simultaneous confession that God has chosen to be located in our physical world so that God may be accessible to us. And God refuses to be limited by the physical world even to those places that are important to us. No building, no people, no book, no church can limit God's ability to be accessible to others. Instead, the ascension, it challenges us to ask ourselves, how are we witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ? How do we recognize Christ's presence Among us. In a sermon on the ascension, Barbara Lundblad reflects on an image she once saw of the ascension. It was a black and white woodcut print, finely etched. In the picture, Jesus is rising up as the disciples watch him ascend into the clouds. On the ground, you can see footprints on the earth. The artist had carefully etched Jesus' footprints down on the level where his disciples are standing, looking up, with their mouths wide and gaping. Perhaps the artist was simply imagining a homey detail that isn't in the text. Or perhaps the artist is pressing us not to look up, but to look down, to notice Jesus' muddy footprints all over the Gospels. Can you picture Jesus' footprints in the wilderness? Each time he was tempted, he clung to the words of Torah. One does not live by bread alone. Or worship the Lord your God. Serve only God. Can you picture Jesus' footprints on the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong side of the street with the wrong sorts of people? Can you picture Jesus' footprints walking up to the base of a sycamore tree and looking up and inviting down Zacchaeus, of all people? Can you picture Jesus' footprints walking and then riding into Jerusalem? Can you picture Jesus' footprints stumbling toward Golgotha, loving us to the very end? The Holy Spirit moved Jesus in certain directions. This is the road map he followed. This is how He calls us to follow. The Spirit that anointed Jesus then anoints you and me as his disciples now. That's what Jesus tried to tell his disciples before he left them, that he would not leave them alone. He blessed them. He blesses us. The work was theirs. The work is ours. If you turn around behind you in our sanctuary, to the stained glass of the ascension as pictured on your bulletin cover, but I invite you to turn around and take a look at it now as the light shines through. On that stained glass window in our narthex, we see the scene of Jesus' ascension. Near the very top of that big triangular window is a hand in blessing. It's in the rose, the sort of flower shape there at the top. It is a hand held in blessing. It actually comes from above. It points down to us here on earth. It is a blessing from God, a blessing given long ago, a blessing that is ours even today. The gospel does not end there, at the end of Luke. As verse 53 says, they were continually in the temple blessing God. They were continually in the temple. There is an unendedness to this story, an unendedness to this scene. We are called to see where Jesus' footsteps have been, and we are called to follow. We are blessed, and we are beloved, and we are called to follow. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.